Tonight we continue to work through the book of Micah. Just one more chapter next week, chapter 7. Leo will be preaching that. And I just want to give a quick word to kind of orient what we're going to talk about tonight with the whole book. We're doing Micah 6 tonight. And because prophetic books are often written in a very non-linear way, those of us who like order and outlines sometimes find it difficult to interpret. And even, that's even true for scholars, for commentators. And so they don't all agree on how to divide up the material in Micah. So I want you to know that I'm treating chapters 5, 6, and 7 as one unit. <clears throat> Think of this as a prophecy sandwich. There's some sweet bread in chapter 5, especially what Kevin talked about last week with little... Bethlehem of Judea and how God's going to raise up a ruler and a shepherd. That's very sweet. That, that goes down easy. And chapter 7 that Leo will be preaching on next week has some of the most glorious promises of salvation. It's very sweet. And what I get, chapter 6, is the tough meat in the middle. <clears throat> it's not bad meat. It's good meat. It's nourishing meat. It's essential meat, but it's a little bit harder to swallow and digest. So think of chapter 6 <clears throat> as kind of a, a recapitulation of all the charges brought against Israel in Micah, but without any of the promises of salvation. That's what makes the meat of chapter 6 a bit hard to swallow and digest. And this recapitulation takes place in a courtroom, the very courtroom of God. So tonight we come to a day in court to a courtroom drama to end all courtroom dramas. The plaintiff is God. He's the one bringing the charges. He's also the judge. The defendant is, is, is Israel, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah. The witness for the prosecution is the creation. Specifically, God will call on the mountains and the hills and the foundation of the earth to bear witness. And we, <clears throat> we are the spectators, we're in the gallery, but it so happens that we're related to the defendants. So the outcome of this trial, of this courtroom, will affect us deeply. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles right now to Micah chapter 6. <clears throat> While you're doing that, just remind you of some of the things that um, my brothers who have preached chapters 1 through 5 have have helped us see the context of this prophetic book. Micah prophesied between approximately 742 and, 5, and 686 B.C., primarily to the southern kingdom of Judah. He preached around the same time as Isaiah. He preached to the nation of Judah when it was increasing in prosperity, becoming more and more secularized. The leadership was becoming more oppressive of the poor and... The society itself was becoming more and more corrupt. And now God, the plaintiff and judge, is summoning his people to court to bring some very serious charges against them. So we're going to look at four scenes in this courtroom drama. Scene number one, the Lord's formal indictment of Judah's crimes. Scene number two, the Lord's broken heart for his wayward people. <clears throat> Scene number three, the Lord's clear call to repentance. And scene number four, the Lord's judgment 
on his rebellious people. And then there will be a brief epilogue. Before we dig into the text, let's pray one more time. Lord, tonight we praise and honor you as the Lord God Almighty. We praise you for your mercy and your loving kindness shown to us. We praise you for the goodness that freely chose us to salvation before the world began. We praise you for redeeming us when we were lost with the precious blood of Christ, for sanctifying us by your spirit. Lord, we acknowledge that we have received every benefit from the gospel through Christ and by the Holy Spirit. And once again, Lord, we pray right now that that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable, that you would speak to your people and we would treasure your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to read the whole passage first and then go through it. I'm going to read bits and comment on it. So just keep your Bibles open as we go. So in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we have the Lord's formal indictment of Judah's crimes. God is formally and publicly calling his people to appear in court. And he speaks first to his people and he says, Arise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Notice there's nothing hidden. There's nothing private. The very mountains and hills are witnesses to this indictment. Then he speaks to the creation, his witnesses, and he says, Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord is going to give an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Twice the Lord uses this word indictment. An indictment is an accusation of serious crimes by a proper authority. Today we think of a grand jury issuing an indictment in case of a a felony. God is formally charging his people. He's indicting them before the whole creation, and he's going to contend with them. He's going to debate, dispute, accuse, and even oppose them. So that's scene one. The Lord's formal indictment, his formal summoning his people to court. Then in chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, we have the Lord's broken heart for his wayward people. This is the second scene. And this is very surprising. Suddenly there's a noticeable change of tone as God begins to address his people more personally. Throughout Micah, the Lord has been ruthlessly bearing the heart of sinful Israel. In chapter 3, verse 2, he says, You who hate the good and love the evil. But now the Lord is sorrowfully laying open his own heart and how he mourns over his people. The tone here is more like a broken-hearted husband pleading with his unfaithful wife than merely a prosecuting attorney bringing charges. And this is what he says. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. 
and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Again, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a husband pleading with his wife here. He says, you find me wearisome. You find me unappealing. What have I done to weary you? What have I done to alienate you? Do you remember when you were in Egypt in slavery for 400 years? Do you remember how I sent the plagues on Egypt, how I passed over your firstborn son and led you right through the Red Sea? What about the godly leaders that I sent to you? What about Moses and Aaron and Miriam and how I even worked miracles through them? Do you remember the way I took your enemies' destructive plots and turned them upside down and saved you? Do you remember how Balak wanted to destroy you and how Balaam wanted to curse you? How about when I conquered 10 hostile nations and gave you their very land? I gave you their cities, their fields, their vineyards, their very houses. Was that boring? Was that wearisome? Answer me. So the Lord is reminding them of his righteous acts, his powerful salvation, and his steadfast love. This section just bleeds with God's broken-hearted love for his wayward, forgetful, contemptuous people. The plaintiff reveals himself here as a broken-hearted lover. That's scene two. Moving on to scene three, verses six through eight. The Lord's clear call to repentance. Well, we can say at least he probably has their attention. They've been called out, exposed, rebuked. What is their response? Look at verses six and seven. With what shall I come before the Lord? and bow myself down before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now again, commentators don't agree. Some believe that this is Micah responding to the Lord, and others believe that this is uh, Israel or Judah responding to the Lord. I'm taking the second option. I'm reading it as Judah, the convicted people, responding to the Lord. So here's my paraphrase. Okay, Lord, we get it. We screwed up. Bad. So tell us, how do we make things right with you? How do we make up for our sins? How can we escape your fierce judgment? If we've learned anything from the temple, it's that you like sacrifices, right? We remember David and Solomon offered 10,000 sacrifices. So, so how about this, Lord? We bring burnt offerings and sin offerings, and we're talking about good ones, calves, a year old. What if we offer thousands of them like David and Solomon with 10,000 rivers of oil as dressing? David and Solomon did that, and they were two of your favorites, and they messed up pretty bad too. No. That's not enough. Well, we remember you called Abraham to sacrifice his beloved Isaac, his beloved son. That sounds really radical. Would that be enough to atone for our sins? Now, I realize that this sounds ridiculous. Even David said, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. 
you will not be pleased with burnt offerings. David said, the sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So what are we to make of their response? I think two things. First of all, we want to acknowledge that recognition of sin and understanding the demand for justice is a good first step. But that outward acts and external sacrifices simply cannot atone for our sins. Even today, when people are initially convicted of sin, it's almost irresistible to try to do something to make it right with God, to try to offer sacrifices, not bulls and goats, but it might include, Lord, if you forgive me, I'll, I'll just ramp up church attendance. I'll be there every Sunday twice. I'll give up my favorite foods and activities. I'll read the Bible every day. I'll take my wife out once a week. I'll even volunteer time at the rescue mission. But as one commentator said, the actions of my body cannot atone for the sins of my soul. Something else is needed. We know this truth as believers. We're reminded of it in an old hymn. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer know? These for sins could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Now, God doesn't reveal here that something else that is necessary for atonement. But we know that it's essential for everything else that follows. And we know already from Micah that this something else relates to the one prophesied in Micah 5, the great shepherd from Bethlehem who will be their peace. So that's first. Second thing we learn from their response. Although God doesn't reveal what's needed to atone for our sins, he does reveal what he wants from us, what he requires from us. <clears throat> he wants our hearts. He wants our inner devotion. He wants our very lives, not mere externals. And here in verse 8, arguably one of the two most famous passages in Micah, he spells out what the fruit of real repentance looks like. It looks like this. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Again, some of Micah's most famous words. I'm going to take those three things in reverse order because I think there's kind of a spiritual logic to it. So God requires, as repentance, that we walk humbly with him. Humility is foundational to everything. There's an old story of an ancient saint revered by the people. Someone came up to him and said, these people came up to him and said, what are the three cardinal virtues for a Christian? And he thought and he said, the first and most important virtue for a Christian is humility. The second most important virtue for a Christian is humility. And the third most important virtue for a Christian is humility. Humility is acknowledging God's supreme 
majesty over the whole universe. It's cultivating pleasure in knowing him and serving him. And it's living wide-eyed with wonder at the whole earth being full of his glory. And again, this is captured in another great hymn of the faith. This is my father's world. And to my listening ear, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand, the wonders wrought. So God requires that we walk humbly with, with him with our eyes wide open to his wonders. Secondly, God requires that we love kindness. The word kindness there is hesed, God's covenant love. ESV translates it hundreds of times probably as steadfast love. Other translations call it God's tender mercies, his loving kindness. We're to love this. Notice we're not just called to do acts of kindness and love. You can just go to websites for that, right? Random acts of kindness. Look them up. Check them off. We're called to love, has said. I think that means that we are called to love being loved by God. And we are called to love loving God by loving others. David said, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And a thousand years later, the apostle John said, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we're to love kindness. And then third, we're to do justice. Our walking humbly and loving kindness is, is to issue forth in doing justice. God calls us to strive for integrity of character, to treat everyone with fairness so that each person is treated according to God's righteous law, especially the poor and the vulnerable. And ultimately, he calls that evil be punished and good be rewarded. And this is all summarized and brought into perfect focus in the coming of Messiah. And Isaiah describes the Messiah doing justice this way. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God, this is the heart of the law. This is the will of God. This is the basis of all the charges against Judah. These are the things they were not doing. And this is God's clear call to repentance for all of us. The prophet Joel is helpful here as we bring in a passage from Joel 2 in a similar call to repentance. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, that's internal, and not your garments, that's external. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So if Israel will repent from the heart and learn to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God, there will be great hope. 
But again, that hope doesn't appear in this chapter. It doesn't point. We have to wait for next week for that. So that leads us to our fourth scene in the day in court. Chapter 6, verses 9 through 16. The Lord's judgment on his rebellious people. Now we're going to look first at the charges. I'm going to, I'm going to read all the verses here, but a few of them will be a little bit out of order. <clears throat> the surface charges, or the, the external behavior charges, God says this. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. The meaning of these external charges is that the people of Judah have were exploiting and oppressing the poor to increase their wealth. And this is an abomination to the God of justice. So those are the external actions. Then he briefly refers to the more deeper level heart sins in verse 16. He says, For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels. The meaning, you people of Judah have followed the example of two notoriously evil kings from the north into rank idolatry and false worship. So there's a heart defection leading to all kinds of external behavior that's wicked. And then he says, here's, here's the punishment. We're back in verse 13. Therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. The meaning here is that I will devastate you with unsatisfied hunger, lost savings, unproductive labor, shameful isolation, and contemptuous ridicule. So to summarize, despite the Lord's authoritative summons to appear before him, his broken-hearted pleas to his unfaithful people, and his clear call to repentance, chapter 6 ends on a note of judgment. All the way through the Bible, there's this dual theme, salvation and judgment, salvation and judgment. And this chapter... Fortunately, not the book, but this chapter ends with the note of judgment. Musically, minor key chord, fade to silence. 
So I said we'd have a short epilogue. The epilogue is, so now what? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to walk out of church, have fellowship around the table <laughs> with our eyes down, our hearts on the ground feeling condemned? Of course not. We are Christians. Christians are gospel people. Now, every sermon must do two things. First of all, it must be true to the text. We can't just fly over the surface of the text because we don't like it and we want to get to the gospel. But every sermon should be a gospel sermon as well. We're hopeful people. Now, here's the thing. We can't sneak a peek ahead to next week because that would be cheating. That would be stealing Leo's thunder. Can't do that. But we can look back. We can look back at all kinds of glimpses of hope and promise and salvation in Micah, especially verses 3 through 5. So it's true that chapter 6 ends on an ominous note, but this merely prepares us for a joyfully triumphant chapter 7. So what I'm going to do is end by reciting some of the hints, the glimpses of hope, gospel hope, that we've seen in chapters 3 through 5. And then I'm just going to eagerly and earnestly invite you back next week. You don't want to miss it. It's great. So chapter 3, verse 8. Micah says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. That sounds like someone else that Isaiah will prophesy about in Isaiah 11. Chapter 4, verse 2. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There's great hope. People are going to come and God's going to teach them. Chapter 4, verse 4. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. That's a picture of security and prosperity and peace. Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth forevermore. Isn't that the Lord's way to take the outcasts and the rejects and the hurting and the hopeless and make him the core of his people? In chapter 4, verse 10a, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And then we've got to end with the passage that Kevin McCalvey preached on from Micah 5 last week. Chapter 5, verses 2 through 5a. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. From ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, 
For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray. Lord, all through the word, again, we see this dual theme of salvation and judgment. Salvation and judgment. Salvation for all who turn to this ruler and shepherd from Bethlehem. Judgment for those who refuse him and die in their sins. Father, would you grant to us tonight repentance and faith for the salvation of our souls. And like Jesus' mother Mary, may we treasure up these things, this good news of the gospel in our hearts, and so glorify you and enjoy you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.